headlines from the past few days. One dead in knife attack in Paris last night. Two European cyclists found dead in Mexico, body beheaded. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman forced to resign after four women accuse him of physical abuse. He says it was merely role play. Baltimore suspends top cop after federal tax charges. Those are just a few of the headlines I picked up as I was thinking through this message this week. And sadly, headlines like that for us, they're all too common. Stories of death and and abuse and of corruption were inundated with them, often leaving us to wonder, begging that question, are there any good people? Are there any good people? I wonder how you'd answer that question this morning. Are there any good people? You know, this is actually a question that's not new to us. It's a question that has been raised by theologians. It was the classic debate between Augustine and Pelagius back in the 5th century. Political philosophers have, have argued about such things as well. Hobbes and Rousseau, for example, thinking about this very question. Now, Americans, we are a persistently optimistic bunch of people. So it was Obama in his, in his final news conference as he was bantering back and forth with the news media, and he closed with these final words, final news conference, final words, I believe in this country. I believe in the American people. I believe that people are more good than bad. I believe tragic things happen. I think there's evil in the world. But I think at the end of the day, if we work hard and if we're true to those things in us that feel true and feel right, well, that the world gets a little better each time. And that's what my presidency has tried to be about. Now, it's true that behind closed doors, I do curse more than I do publicly. At that point, the audience laughed. Sometimes I get mad and get frustrated like everybody else. But at my core, I think we're going to be okay. More good than bad. If we're true to what feels true and right, right, the world gets better. What is how is it? We're going to be okay. I think there, President Obama captures, he captures what most Americans and our current president believe, namely, that we are good. It's what we want to believe is true. When it it comes to the human condition, we're fundamentally good, at least more good than bad. So again, what do you think? How would you answer that question at the core of our being? Are we shining stars or lost causes? Which one is it? Now, if you graduated yesterday, you may be feeling like, Brad, I just finished school. I didn't come back to a philosophy class to think about questions like this. But I think this is an incredibly practical and important question. It's not just a philosophical question, because how you answer this question will affect how you understand yourself, your own motivations. It will affect how you understand the world. What's the role of government, of legislation, of courts, and the law? It's going to affect how you approach marriage, how you approach strife with your own wife or husband. It's going to affect how you raise children. Most importantly, 
This question affects how you understand your own relationship with God, your own relationship with God. So in that sense, there are few questions more important than this question. And friends, this takes us right back to the book of Ephesians. We've been in the last few weeks. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, if you don't happen to have a Bible, don't fret. We provide them for you in the seat backs there. So if you don't have one, they should be read. And you can turn to page 976. You're going to find Ephesians 2 on page 976. Now, as you turn there, recall the Apostle Paul, he wrote... Ephesians to this small, reasonably small, persecuted band of Christians who had been rather important, it seems, and yet in foregoing their former way of life and in aligning with Jesus, they had really become a scandal to society. And so in chapter 1, before anything else, Paul wants them to know, and he wants to remind them that they're blessed. He's saying, you're blessed in chapter 1. I know what the world thinks about you, But don't forget, he says, the Father's elected you, the Son has redeemed you, the Spirit has sealed you. Even the very power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. That's what he needs them to know. That's chapter one. And yet for them to fully appreciate what God has done and what he's going to do and building them together into a community, Jew and Gentile in the church is where it goes in chapters two and three in order for them to fully appreciate what he has done, they first need to be reminded of what they've been rescued from. What they've been rescued from. And so we pick up chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Friends, these three verses hit us a bit like a Mike Tyson uppercut. Whatever Paul is teaching, whatever he's communicating in these verses, one thing is clear. Paul doesn't seem to share the, the rosy, optimistic outlook that often characterizes our assessment of the human condition. Now, as we dive into these verses, I just want to make two things clear. First, a personal confession. So I recall in my previous church with my previous pastor, I mocked him for preaching hell on Mother's Day. And here this week, I found myself like, it's divine wrath on Mother's Day. Oh my word, I'm no better. Well, I just want to assure you, I didn't set the preaching schedule out this way. How are we doing here? Okay. I didn't set the preaching schedule out this way. I didn't plan it so this text would fall on this day. I'm not trying to send any signals to moms. So you're all rest assured of that. You know, I planned this preaching calendar out back in the first week of January, and I honestly just wasn't thinking about what was going to happen in the middle of May. So here we are in verses 2, 1 to 3. But a second thing that's going to help you, and it's going to be, I think, even of more help, is if you understand that 2, 1 to 3 fits actually within a broader argument that Paul's making. 
And it's actually two, verses one to seven, is one sentence in Greek. Paul's loving these long sentences in the early uh, chapters of Ephesians. And two, one to seven, again, is one sentence. But grammatically, the main subject doesn't even come in these verses. It comes in verse four, God. And the main verb doesn't come until verse five, he made alive, made us alive. So two, one to three, these verses are going to drive us sort of to the depths of our own spiritual hopelessness and helplessness, but that's to prepare us for the main idea of 2, 1 to 7, which is a glorious idea, namely that although, Paul says, although you were dead in sins, God made us alive together with Christ. That's the wonderful message he's going to bring. He just doesn't go there right away. He begins, and you... And before he gets to the good news, he's very optimistic when it comes to God. Before he gets to the good news, he wants us first to think. And he digresses sort of three verses in one long, incomplete sentence in Greek. And, and this one long, incomplete sentence in Greek is intentional. Paul's, he's building drama. He's, he's creating suspense. Spiritually speaking, it's a bit like he's holding their heads underwater until he brings them out, verses 4 and 5. He's got a sort of spiritual chokehold upon them. And in verses 1 to 3, he's locking it in tighter and tighter as he builds his argument. And that's because before they can appreciate what they are by grace, before they can appreciate what they are by grace, he needs them first to know what they are by nature. So in these verses, so Paul, what he's doing is he's really going to raise, and I think helpfully for us, he's going to combat sort of three common misconceptions we have about the human condition. And these common misconceptions are actually going to serve as our three points this morning. So first is this, spiritually speaking, misconception number one, spiritually speaking, we're not sick, but dead. We're not sick, but dead. Now, obviously, looking around, there is something wrong with the world. So murder, fraud, deceit, terror, abuse, exploitation, we see these things, sadly, every single day. And the world will often suggest what we suffer from is like a kind of sickness. You know, inside, we're inherently good and healthy, but either due to structural problems outside of us, or perhaps some vices within us, you know, we're not operating at our fullest potential. It's like we have a, a kind of cold, and with the right medicine, be it education or employment opportunities, right, with the right medicine, all can be made well. I just want you to notice that's actually not the Bible's assessment. That's not the Bible's assessment. What, what does Paul say in chapter 2, verse 1? He says, and you were dead, dead in your transgressions and sins, dead, certainly not healthy, not sick but dead, as in moribund, lifeless, inert, dead. Paul doesn't say we were sick with sin. He doesn't say that we suffer from a kind of spiritual runny nose, like we caught the sin sniffles or something. Doesn't say that we were dirty with sin and all we need is a little cleansing and rinsing and, and we can be clean and well. He doesn't say we were marred with a little sin, like we have some sin scar somewhere, perhaps somewhere in our past, and now we've moved beyond it. 
He doesn't say that we were caught in sin, like sin is simply some kind of a bad habit. No, he says dead in sin, as in flatlined, without life, corpses. He's saying all of you, all of us, were spiritual stiffs. Paul's not saying we're on our deathbed. He's saying we're already six feet under. We're not drowning. We're already at the bottom of the sea. Spiritually speaking, he sets us up right away for a very helpless and hopeless condition. And how did we get this way? He says we're dead in or you can even translate it because of your trespasses and sins. Now that word trespass in the Bible is, suggests sort of the, the idea that we cross a known boundary. We deviate from a path. We go someplace that we're not supposed to go. And it's to sort of act as a criminal. The word sin, it's a different notion. It carries the idea of missing the mark, sort of failing, falling short. So the arrow doesn't strike the bullseye, it flies askew, it really just doesn't quite make it. So I know I listened to Ryan Troglin while I was away last week, I listened uh, on a podcast and he talked about the tongue wagon and being like Mike. Well, I used to try to do that and that was by dunking. But there's a reason I stayed in the water. I don't elevate. And so what happens every time I would dunk and sadly tried one time in a game? Yeah, I missed the mark didn't quite reach it. Rather embarrassing, that's kind of the idea. We try with all our effort, but we don't quite get there. Now we live in a world where this idea of sin and of trespasses, that's hard for us. It doesn't make sense to us. It's very passe, very, very negative, maybe even repressive to us because sin doesn't make sense. It's vanished largely from our moral consciousness because we don't have much of a concept of God. And this is not just true in the public sphere, though it certainly is. It's true even in pews, even in pulpits. And so the, the largest evangelical church in my hometown of Santa Cruz, California, doesn't use this word sin. It chooses not to use the word. But friend, if you misunderstand the disease, you're never going to arrive at a cure. And one of the problems we have with this notion of sin is that sin suggests there's a standard and there's a standard outside of us. And we don't like that because we like to think we live in a world where we're the author of our own existence, the judge of our own values, the master of our own fate. And yet this notion of sin introduces us to a sovereign and a holy God to whom all of us are held accountable. And ever since the Garden of Eden, we've wanted the universe to revolve around us, and yet sin reminds us it doesn't revolve around us, it revolves around God. So sin is going contrary to God. It's taking issue with him, it's dismissing him, it's refusing to submit to him, it's displacing God from the center of our own existence. You know, the essence of sin is forsaking God in order to find in oneself what we had once found in God. That gets to the very essence of sin, to forsake God in order to find in oneself, to find in ourselves what we had once found in God. Now the world will say this isn't actually our fundamental problem. Sin is not the real issue. Maybe esteem is the issue. The problem is that actually we, we it's not, that we don't, it's not that we think rather too much, don't think too much of ourselves, but we actually think too little of ourselves. 
We need to think more of ourselves. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as sinners, as violators, but as ones who have been sinned against. And so if any of you know Robert Schuller, former pastor of Crystal Cathedral out in L.A., he actually updated the Lord's Prayer. You can get Robert Schuller's version of the Lord's Prayer, and it goes like this. Forgive us our debts. It's not what he says. That's what Jesus said. He says, forgive us those who have wronged us. Not forgive us our debts. Forgive us those who have wronged us. I think that highlights the mentality of our world. We're not those who sin against God. We are first those who have been sinned against. And yet the Bible holds out to us, even right here, before we are ever victims, we are victimizers. We are those who have sinned. And not just some of us. He says you, but he moves on from there. If you notice the movement in these three verses, he moves from how you, who once walked, i.e. once lived, you referring likely to his Gentile Ephesian readers, verse 3, to we all once lived. So moving from you to we, Paul's including himself, likely his Jewish hearers as well, to the end of verse 3, like the rest of mankind. So from you to we to all humanity. Nobody is left out. Nobody escapes. That's Paul's assessment. And friend, that means you. That means me. That means every one of us in this room. This is spiritually true of us naturally. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Not just sick, but dead. As he says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And friends, dead people can't save themselves. They can't save themselves. And that's misconception number one. In our natural spiritual condition, we're not just sick, we're actually dead. But Paul's going to take his argument even further into verse two. And he's going to show it's not just that we lack the ability to save ourselves. He's going to say we lack even the inclination to save ourselves. And that's because, getting to our second misconception We're not allies, but rebels. We're not allies. Not allies of God, but rebels. Now, when we think of God, we think of ourselves, we like to think God, me, us, we're on the same team. But in verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3, they reveal actually none of us are cooperating with God or even neutral toward God, but in fact, in our natural state, we're all in rebellion against this God. And Paul gives three spheres where this rebellion plays out. He says, it plays out as we followed the course of this world. That's the first. As we second followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, So the world, here he refers to the devil. And then third is he talks about how they lived and the passions of their flesh. So world, devil, and flesh. Those are the three three spheres in which our rebellion plays itself out. World, devil, and flesh. Now we like to prize ourselves as a nation, sort of a country of rugged individualists. But spiritually speaking, Paul is saying everyone naturally, we're all conformists. We're not really individuals. We all conform. We conform to the ways of this world, he says. Whether or not that's something as simple as how we dress or the values we think we have to possess. 
There is enormous pressure in the world to conform. Perhaps nowhere is that pressure more clear than in the area of gender and sexuality. So whether it's in courtrooms or what we see through our TV in our own living rooms, the message is loud and clear. We've got to get on board with the status quo or else. And so sadly, and yet, though we're saddened, we're not surprised when we hear of a, of a prominent pastor like Andy Stanley down in Atlanta, of an evangelical church in that area, teach last week that what we therefore have to do is unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We have to unhitch ourselves. Why? Well, because by unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament and its own biblical sexual ethic, that opens up, he says, the church to a more inclusive understanding of biblical sexuality. So my Christian friend, thinking of the world and the pressure of the world, what does your life look like? As you reflect on your own life, maybe even this past week, what does your life look like? Does it look more like the world and following the ways of the world, or does it more, look more like following Christ? Where have you perhaps adopted the world's values? Whether it's on gender and sexuality, or whether it's on money, whether it's on power, whether it's self-interest. You know, if someone were to shadow you for a day, even for a week, would it be clear to them whom you follow? Would that be clear to them? Would it be clear to them that you understand you're a sinner, but that you seek to repent of your sin? Would it be clear to them that you're actually grieved by your sin? Would it be clear that you're not only interested in yourself, but you care about the interests of others? Others perhaps in this local body, would such things be clear? Oh, friend, I pray they're clear. I pray they're increasingly clear. If you're not sure, ask a friend of yours. Ask them to give it an honest assessment of your life and what they see and be humble enough to receive it. But we don't just naturally follow the world. He says there's a second sphere in which we act out a rebellion. It's, it's the sphere of the devil. Now, I don't think Paul's saying here that every non-Christian is possessed by the devil. He's simply affirming the devil's real. And though he may be invisible to us, he is nonetheless actively at work in the world. And he is at work, if by no other way than trying to convince us that he doesn't exist. And that we don't really need to make any decision about God or the nature of whether or not we're good or bad or whatever it might be. But here's the thing. You know, if you've come this morning and you don't profess faith in Christ, you know, you're not even sure exactly what to make about Christ, so you just keep pushing it off, keep thinking, oh, I'll deal with this question a bit later. You know, I'll think about who this Jesus is and I'll try to make a determination and what that means for me. I'll think about it later. In the meantime, sort of, I'll play Switzerland. I'll be neutral. Like, I won't take a side. Oh, friend, if that's how you're approaching it, just notice that Jesus doesn't say, whoever is not with me exists in neutrality. He doesn't say whoever is not with me is merely neutral. He says in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is in fact against me. Against me. The decision not to make a decision about Christ, that is a, that is a choice. It's actually to, to cast the ballot for the devil himself. But it's not just the world, and it's not just the devil, but verse 3, he talks about the passions of our flesh, our rebellion, and carrying out the desires of the body and our mind. Right? That also identifies us as rebels. 
Now, when Paul says the flesh, you know, he's not referring to sort of the skin and the tissue that, that is around our bones. He's referring to our fallen and our very self-centered nature. He's saying that when we give in to our desires, when we oblige them, when we even celebrate our desires, when they're contrary to God, those things are sinful, and that identifies us as rebels. Now, that's not how we're taught to think about such things. No, the line that we're fed is, if it feels good, do it. What did President Obama say in that final news conference that I read just a moment ago? We must be, quote, true to those things in us that feel true and feel right. You know, that's the moral reasoning of the world. We have to be true to ourselves. And so we assume that if a desire is innate in us, then it therefore must necessarily be right for us. That's the logic. But friend, you don't actually believe that. None of us should believe that. Because if Johnny gets angry with Sally on the playground and says, you know what, I want to punch Sally, we don't say, Johnny, you know what, just be true to yourself. Lay her out. Of course that's not what we say. We don't say to a child, listen, I know you stole your brother's money, but because that desire came deep within the well of your own heart and it felt right when you did it, go have fun with it. Of course we don't say that. We don't say anything like that. We understand some desires that well from within aren't good. In fact, some desires are bad. They're even wicked and evil. That's why societies have laws. Why we have police forces, why we have a military and courts, and why we have parents. We understand that there are things, regardless of how innate they may feel to us, they still nonetheless have to be curbed in us for our own good and for the good of others. Because not all that we desire is good. In fact, much of it isn't. And that's why Paul speaks of both what we desire with our bodies and with our minds. He's saying it's not just that we have physical passions that are bent and twisted. He's referring there also to our intellect, to our reasoning. In other words, sin has sort of a totality of effect upon us. The idea that Paul's getting at is this idea of, of total depravity. If you've ever heard of that expression, that's part of what Paul's getting at here. The notion is that nothing in us is left untainted by the fall. So emotionally, psychologically, mentally, morally, spiritually, the fall affects all of us. Now that's not to say total depravity, we're as bad as we could be. It's not to say we're utterly depraved. I mean, Hitler was a vicious beast, but he didn't kill his mom. He did spare some French towns at the pleas of priests. Right? We're not as bad as we could be. It's saying that sin affects the totality of us. It's radical, and then it gets to the root of us. We're not just bruised. There's a rot, and like an apple, and extends to our very core, which is why however much we want to believe that old book, I'm okay, you're okay, if you know the self-help book, we want to believe that, and yet we struggle to explain all of those dark strokes across the canvas of our own lives, and we can't make sense of it. Friend, that's because the Bible is actually a good bit more realistic about our condition than our culture ever will be. 
So what's the problem with the world? You watch the news, you read the reports, the papers, you talk to classmates and coworkers, and what do most of them say? They say the issue is economic. Or we need better economic systems. We need to, to have better jobs for folks and to train them up better. That's how some answer. Some say, no, it's a judicial issue. The courts are corrupt. We just, they're incapable of handling cases. Some say it's political. You know, people lack a voice. They don't have a participation in the process or we don't have the right candidate in office. Others say, no, it's not that, it's the family. Or there are too many single parents. There are no stable families, no role models in the home anymore. Or it's education. You know, the key is knowledge. Knowledge is the key to power and prosperity and overcoming all of our prejudices. It's enlightenment through education. That's what we need. And all of these answers, which we all hear regularly, share one thing in common. And it's this. The greatest problems we face are structural. They're out there, outside of us. But this is where the Bible steps up to the mic and it silences the cacophony of voices in our culture and says, no, the problem isn't fundamentally out there. The problem's in here. It's in our own hearts. It's the sin that resides and wells up and we act out upon. It's that in all of us. Left to ourselves, right? It's Lord of the flies every single time. We're not only dead, as in there's finally no true spiritual ability in us, it's not just that. We're also fallen in our very nature, such that through the pull of the world and the pull of the devil and the pull of the flesh, we have no disposition, we have no inclination, we have no predilection to the things of God, we have no interest in them, unless God implants such an interest in us. That's the deadness, that's the depravity that we face. Now, I know sometimes we like to speak of people as seekers. You know, it's a natural thing for many Christians to do. We like to say people are searching, searching for God, maybe searching all over the world. They're looking for him, turning up every rock, looking in every corner, wondering if somewhere they might find God. But friends, we've got to be really clear. God is not playing hide and seek. It's not playing hide and seek in the scriptures. Who hid in the garden in the scriptures? It wasn't God who was hiding Jesus came to what? To seek and to save the lost. Jesus isn't hiding. God's not a fugitive. We are the ones on the run. It's us. We cannot find God for the same reason a thief can't find a police officer. It's because we don't want to. We don't want to. We are, in the truest spiritual sense, rebels without a cause. And friends, that brings us to our third misconception, where Paul is going to sort of further tighten that chokehold upon us. He's saying, not only are we not sick but dead, not allies but rebels, but because of this rebellion, he's going to take it a step further, and he's going to say, we're at war with God. The problem is actually worse than we thought. The problem that we have is not finally even with ourselves, it's with God. That, that's our problem, God himself, such that, thirdly, the misconception, we're not naturally favored, but condemned. Not favored, but condemned. Which again is not how we like to think of our relationship with God. It's not just that we like to think God and I are on the same team. We like to think of God perhaps as our own personal life coach. 
You know, he exists to help us out and to cheer us on. Maybe we think we're even the apple of God's eye, just naturally. That's, that's who we are. And yet Paul writes that the consequence of all this conformity, of all this rebellion, is that we are what? By nature, children of wrath. By nature, as in he's saying, it's our natural condition. It's inherent in us. Sin is not merely an action that occasionally describes us, but sin is a condition inside of us. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There's a world of difference in that right there. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's in our nature. It's in our nature to sin as much as it is in my puppy's nature to bark, which drives me nuts. It's in his nature. It's in our nature. It's why we can stop some of our bad habits, but we can't stop all our bad habits. We stop one, another one takes its place. What did Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah say in 17, 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Beyond cure. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, 5, we'll be thinking about tonight. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It's what Wes read of from from Psalm 14, which if it sounded familiar, it's because you probably know it from Romans 3, but Paul's just getting that from Psalm 14, why we shouldn't unhitch ourselves from our Old Testaments, but leave that aside. Psalm 14, there's no one who does good, not even one. Why? Because, as the psalmist says, why is that? Because we're all corrupt. It's in our nature. Again, it's what Paul talks about in Romans 3, but really nobody who does good, not even one, no good out there. What about Gandhi? He was a very loving man, did a lot of kind things for people. Frankly, he was quite a bit more loving and kind than many Christians I know. What about the atheist who falls on a grenade for a fellow soldier? What about a Jewish business owner who gives a large grant to a university? Or a neighbor who mows their yard, picks up their trash, loves their spouse, waves at the kids who walk by? The occasional church attender who writes a big church check for the budget? Are none of these people good? Well, in a sense, you can say they're all relatively good. But finally, before God, no, they're not. Because for a deed to be good, it has to not only conform to God's standard, it has to be done by faith and with the proper motive, namely with the glory of God as its chief concern, the service of him and not in the service of self. And the reality is you and I, we all suffer from a good degree of self-interest. We love to throw our own glory parades, though we often cloak it in righteousness. But we're a lot more about self-interest than we ever give ourselves credit for. There are finally no good people from God's point of view because good is not what we attempt, it's who we are. Recognize, this is why Jesus was always mixing it up with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, they made sin all about action. Righteousness was all about outward conformity. They missed the heart. They misunderstood that someone can outwardly conform and yet inwardly rebel. Which is why as parents this morning... 
It is Mother's Day, right? Mom's a good thing to think about. With our own children, our goal is not mere outward conformity. Our goal is not simply shallow obedience. Our goal is children who understand this about themselves and therefore understand that they have a much greater need for grace, for God's grace, that God might make them by grace what they are not by nature. That's what we need to be instilling in our own children. That's the message they need to be hearing. That's the message they need to be seeing in us. They need to be seeing that modeled in our own homes. Because friends, God, he doesn't grade on a curve. It's why he refers there to us as children of wrath. Now I hear that word wrath, and just given my age, I think of Bobby Knight, old coach of Indiana University basketball who would, who would fly off the handle, face red, veins bulging, throwing chairs like they're frisbees across the court, uttering profanities so quickly and so many, I, you can't keep count of them. That's what I think of when I think of wrath. But friends, that's a terrible image when it comes to God because God never flies off the handle. God never blows up in fits of rage. His wrath, it's not unbridled anger. It's not spite. It's not malice. It's not born out of revenge. God's not subject to, to moods, to whims, to caprice. No, God's wrath, it's his committed hostility of his holy will to all that rebels against him and what is good. It's his settled refusal to make peace with sin. It's his refusal to turn a blind eye to injustice. And the terrible element of God's wrath is that besides being perfectly controlled, it is totally concentrated and absolutely determined to condemn all evil, even when that evil is us. Even when it's us. Friends, that's what it means for God to be holy. That's what it means for God to be just. It's not simply that those who do the most wrong get caught in God's net. It's those who do any wrong because he's this kind of a God who are rightly caught in that net. Which is why the most basic problem we face in this life, it's, it's not stress, it's not poor self-esteem or self-image, it's not educational, it's not intellectual, it's not political, it's not social, it's moral, it's our guilt as we stand condemned before this holy God, justly condemned under his wrath. That's the problem Paul lays out in 2, 1 to 3. Finally, there are no good people, he's saying. That's his argument. What's wrong with the world? Paul's saying, if you didn't get it, it's us. We are the problem. Happy Mother's Day. It's the hard truth. We're not good. We're not even in a state of spiritual neutrality. He's saying we're dead in sin. We're living in rebellion. We're under satanic dominion. And we are, every one of us, destined for condemnation. That's his summary. Paul is pinning us to the mat in order for us to come face to face with the hopelessness and the helplessness of our condition by nature apart from grace. 
But we got to close by looking at one key word. And that word tips us off that this isn't, in fact, the end of the story. And praise God, verses 4 to 7 follow. And the one word that tips us off is that word once. I don't know if you picked up on it. That word once. All this describes how verse 2, how they once walked in trespasses and sins. How they once walked. How they, verse 3, how they once lived. This describes who they were past tense. Past tense. Who they were by nature. By nature. Not who they are present tense by grace. So friends, so for all your supposed liberation, for all your freedoms, I wonder if you've come this morning recognizing you're actually not truly free. The bad you don't want to do is what you do, and the good you know you should do is what you don't do. Friend, if you've come and you've found that you can't stop all your bad habits because new habits keep resurfacing, if you've come to understand that the root of your own plight is a whole lot deeper than any government or any relationship could ever fix, if you've come to understand this morning that you are in fact lost and you don't know the way, that's Paul's goal. And he'll say, don't despair, because that's where true hope begins. That's where it begins. There was a poem published, uh, it might have been in the early 70s. I was on a magazine cover, a rather obscure magazine cover. But it reads, and I think it reads in many respects equally true today. And the poem goes like this, I have taken the pill, referring to the birth control pill. I've taken the pill. I've hoisted my skirts to my thighs, dropped them to my ankles, rebelled at university, skied at Aspen, lived with two men, married one, earned my keep, kept my identity, and frankly, I'm lost. I'm lost. Friend, if that describes you, if you have found yourself conforming to the ways of this world, if you find yourself giving yourself over to the cravings of your own flesh, and you're no more satisfied, you're no more content, you're even left more lost and more despondent, Paul's saying there is another way. That's who we are by nature. But we can become something else by grace. I can't preach next week, but that's the message you need to know. And you need to know it before next week. Because if that describes you, there is one whom we can go to who in fact was perfectly good. Who always acted out in faith and in conformity to God's law and for, for God's own motivation and purposes and righteousness and joy. And that was Jesus. Perfectly obeying the will of his father. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And it's the same Jesus who by nature died on a cross as a substitute for sinners. So that all those who see their own lostness and see their own spiritual inability, for those in whom God works repentance and faith, as we turn from our sin and as we trust in him, we can know newness of life. This doesn't have to be the end of our story. It can continue. We can read verses four to seven and say, yes, that's me. By the grace of God, that's me. That can be our story. Because this is how Jesus lived, and this is how he loved, and this is how he makes those who are sons of disobedience 
sons of God. Friend, the question is, will, will you walk out of here today? Will you live by nature? Or will you look to Christ and live by grace? Will you live by grace? Whose goodness, whose goodness will you be trusting in? Let's pray.